Shabbat Shalom and welcome to Simcha Israel. So I was getting more and more frantic as Paul was giving his drosh because he was making so many great points. I feel like I don't have anything left to teach you guys today, but I'll do my best. <laughs> yeah. So today we're going to be looking at our Parsha Korach. Make my own remote control out here. All right. So if you've been reading through the book of Numbers with us so far, you know by now that things are not going super great. So the journey to the promised land, which started out with such excitement and hope and promise, has fallen into catastrophe. Throughout the whole book of Leviticus, the children of Israel had been camped at the foot of Mount Sinai, learning how to relate to God and to live with him in their presence. And everything had been going relatively smoothly. You know, but as soon as they packed up and actually started heading for the land of Canaan, problems began to arise. So the first thing that the book of Deuteronomy tells us that's only an 11-day journey from Sinai to Canaan. Listen, walking is hard. I get it. Nobody, nobody likes walking. But seriously, 11 days? You know, in the grand scheme of things, and you're, over the course of your life, that's not such a long time. If you can just suck it up for 11 days, in like, like a week and a half, you'll be home. But only a few days into the trip, and the Israelites are not only complaining about the food, but doing so so vehemently, that they're wishing that they were still back in Egypt. The people are railing against Moses, and the tensions are so high that even his siblings are speaking against him. And then we all know what happens next. They send men to go in to spy out the land, and most of them bring back a bad report. It's not a bad thing in itself to have a realistic view of the challenges ahead. I mean, but there's one thing I can tell you from my experiences leading backpacking trips in the mountains, is that if the leader says it's difficult then the followers are going to say it's impossible. And if the leader says it's impossible, the followers will lose all hope. So when the spies tell Israel that they don't stand a chance against the strength of the Canaanites, the predictable happens. An unchecked pessimism spreads through the camp until it becomes a full-scale revolt, not only against Moses, but also God. Once again, the call goes out to abandon God and return back to Egypt to accept a life of slavery. At this point, God has had enough. He realizes that while they may have been physically freed, this generation would always be slaves in Egypt, in their hearts. He cannot bring them into the land if their faith in his ability to keep his promises is so weak. So God decides that this generation will not see the promised land. Instead, they will wander in the desert for 40 years until all the slaves die out. And only then will God lead a new generation, a generation that has been born free and that had been known and trusted in God their whole lives into the promised land. And that brings us to Parshat Chorach. You know, I usually don't do it like uh, previously on the book of Numbers, thing like that, but I think it's important to recognize that Chorach didn't come out of nowhere. It's easy for us to sit here and read about the Israelites and judge them for being so foolish and faithless from the comfort of the pews. But imagine what it must have been like to be an average person in the camp. Maybe someone who lives kind of far from the center of camp, you know, where all the action took place. Remember, this is a camp of anywhere between 600,000 to 2 million people, depending on who you ask. News moves slowly and unreliably in an environment like that. Say you were just some average Zebulonite. What was your experience like so far? So I imagine ever since Moses showed up, your life has been like this pendulum swinging between extreme boredom and terrifying danger. 
So on a good day, you're just baking half to death in the hot desert sun doing nothing. You know, the Levites in the middle, you know, get to do all the, they're working in the Mishkan, they get to see all the cool miracles you keep hearing about and do all the important, meaningful stuff. You know, but don't worry, there's plenty of manna on the ground to pick up and bake into cakes at least. That's always fun. But who knows, maybe today will be an exciting day. Maybe we'll run out of water again. Or maybe one of your friends will get stoned to death for breaking some new law you haven't even heard about yet. Maybe we'll be attacked by the Amalekites. Or we'll get struck by a plague for complaining about getting the hiccups on the Sabbath or something. You know, I mean, apparently Moses has been reading the law in the center of the camp, but it takes like three weeks for news to get back here. You know, I'm just hearing about this golden calf thing now. The one silver lining is that at least in a few days, we'll be in the promised land. And all this heat and thirst and hunger and hardship and uncertainty will be behind us. We can finally start our new lives. Oh, wait, what's that? Oh, apparently news just arrived that we will not be going into the land. Well, that's just fantastic. This whole miserable trip that was predicated on the promise that we'd have a land of our own at the end of it has apparently been all for nothing, and the only thing I have to look forward to for the rest of my life is sunburn, scorpions, sand in my underwear, and manna for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, seven days a week, 365 days a year, for the next 40 years. That was my Jewish impression. <laughs> Unless we get rid of Moses and Korach. Was there ever a time so ripe for a power grab? You know, a little more background here. Paul gave some of it. I'm going to just repeat it a bit. Korach was a leader among the Kohathites. The Kohathites were a division of the tribe of Levi, Moses' own family tribe. Rabbinical sources state that Korach was actually a cousin of Moses and Aaron. So think about what Korach's life must have been like. He started out as a slave in Egypt, and then he became a free man. He rose up that ladder. But he was still the same status as every other Israelite. You know, when the priestly class was established, it was just the firstborn sons of every tribe that was to become priests. All the tribes of Israel were on equal footing. But then the sin of the golden calf occurred. In the aftermath of that terrible ordeal, the tribe of Levi, Moses' own family, were the ones who declared loyalty to God and rose in prominence to become the new priestly class. Once again, Korach saw his position improving but he still wasn't satisfied. You see, Korach was a Kohathite. He was part of the tribe of Levi and was encamped close to the Mishkan. But his branch of the family didn't serve as priests. The way he saw it, an accident of birth, was all that was preventing him from being part of the most elite class. Every day, he would watch the priestly class going about their duties in the Mishkan and jealously covet their position especially the status enjoyed by his cousin Aaron, the high priest. So as the situation in the camp became more and more tense, Horak saw an opportunity to take the power and position he so desired. But he was smart enough not to try to take it by himself. Horak cleverly gathered together other groups of people who felt similarly disenfranchised and jealous of the position held by the Levitical priests. So Korach was encamped right next to the tribe of Reuben and gathered together three leaders from that tribe. The Reubenites believed that because their progenitor had been the firstborn son of Jacob, that their tribe should enjoy prominence amongst all the tribes of Israel as firstborns. These men wanted the Reubenites 
to replace the Levites as the priestly class of the nation. And they were willing to back Korach's claim to the high priesthood to get it. But Korach didn't stop there. He also created a coalition of 250 princes from all of the different tribes. These were men, these men were the firstborn sons of the most prominent families of Israel. The very same men who lost the chance to become the priests of the nation during the sin of the golden calf. The same men who lost their position to the Levites and now wanted it back. So Korach gathers all these power-hungry men together and promises to grant them their desires if they help him become the new leader of the nation. Korach is willing to cut ties with his own tribe and betray his own family in order to gain the power he so desires. So together, they confront Moses and Aaron in front of the whole assembly. He accuses Moses. You have gone too far, he tells them. You have taken too much. You have gathered all this power to yourself, and you have refused to share it. Look at all these people. Are they not also the children of Israel? Are they not also holy? Isn't God with them as well? What right do you have to exalt yourselves above them? To act as though you are better than they? To say that God only works through you? The implication in Korach's accusation is clear. Moses and Aaron have failed the people. And they should step down from their positions of leadership in order to keep the peace. Now, the question I want to ask you all today is, should they have? Moses and Aaron, I mean. You know, just last week, America celebrated the anniversary of its independence. If anyone understands the importance of the right of revolution, it's us, right? Shouldn't the children of Israel have the right to choose their own leaders? To choose its own destiny? Isn't that what freedom is all about? And why wouldn't Moses give up his position, if that's what the people want? We know by now that Moses is a very humble man, certainly not the type to hold on to power for the sake of his own ego. You know, just a few chapters ago, God took some of the spirit that was on Moses and placed on the head of, heads of, there we go, on the heads of 70 of the elders of the tribes, spreading some of Moses' authority among them. Was Moses upset about this? Not at all. In fact, it was quite the opposite. When Moses' young assistant Joshua became upset about this, Moses responded by saying, Are you jealous on my behalf? If only Adonai would make all the people prophets. If only Adonai would put the spirit on all of them. So why does Moses react so differently this time? Is Korach asking for the same thing? For Moses to share some of his authority? What's wrong with that? Well, the answer is, there's nothing wrong with that. Every great leader desires to share his influence. Moses certainly did. Towards the end of his life, before the children of Israel were about to go into the land, a journey that Moses would not be able to take with them, God instructs Moses to transfer his leadership to his disciple Joshua. God instructs Moses to lay his hands on Joshua and impart his spirit onto him. Now, the sages in the commentary on this verse say that the act of laying hands is like lighting one candle to another. Now imagine that Moses is that candle. He is the one who's been bringing the light of his influence to the nation of Israel all this time. When he lays his hands on Joshua and lights another flame, will his own candle go out? Not at all. The light of his influence will be doubled. 
Joshua will carry Moses' influence into the land and spread it even further. When God placed the Holy Spirit on the 70 elders, Moses was not upset because he knew that his influence had been increased, not diminished. God was sharing his light amongst the people, not taking it away. So why then is this situation with Korach different? Moses realized that Korach can't tell the difference between influence and power. Many people don't realize there's a difference. After all, people who have power are often influential, and influential people usually have some power. But the Torah teaches that these two things are so different that they're allocated to two separate roles, kings and prophets. Power is the dominion of the king. A king can levy taxes and conscript armies and wage war and punish crime. Now, prophets have no power at all. They can't tax anyone or raise any armies. They may speak the word of God, but they have no way to enforce it. All a prophet has is influence. Who you can name, say, five prophets off the top of their heads? I'm not a big Bible memorizer. Even I can name a whole bunch of prophets. Moses, Elijah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Jonah, the list goes on and on. Meanwhile, I lost track of the kings of Israel after David and Solomon. Elijah's fight against corruption, Isaiah's visions of the world to come, John's voice crying out in the wilderness, proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. These are stories that still move us today by the sheer force of their inspiration. These men have lit countless flames over the centuries, and thousands of years after their deaths, their light burns even brighter. The same can't be said of, I don't know, Jehoshaphat or Jehu. If the kings of David and Solomon are remembered today, it's because of their psalms and their wisdom, not the laws they passed or the wars they fought. Power forces people to behave in a certain way. Is that? Speaking of power. I'll influence it to move. So power forces people to behave in a certain way. Influences, influence teaches them to see the world differently so that they change of their own accord. The use of power diminishes others. The spread of influence enlarges them. Korach isn't looking for influence. If that's what he wanted, Moses would gladly share with him. Korach wanted power. The sages teach that if influence is like a flame being passed from one candle to another, power is like water being poured from one bowl to another. When one candle lights another, the light is doubled. When water is poured from one bowl to another, it just gets divided in half. Hey, I'm influencing it to move. <laughs> Influence can be shared, but power cannot without threat to authority. If there are competing sources of power within a single body, there can be no leadership. Moses must either put down the rebellion or fatally compromise the office with which he has been charged. So we just answered one part of the question. Moses knows he can't share his power, but if the people want a new leader, why shouldn't Moses just step down altogether and allow Korach a chance maybe to do things better? Putting aside the fact that God has commissioned Moses in his task, and he has no authority to renounce the honor given to him, even if that wasn't the case, Moses knows that Korach is not a suitable leader for the people of, it, the people of God. 
Moses can see right through Korach's rhetoric. Korach presents himself as a man of the people. All of the community is holy. We are all equal. And yet it would seem that Korach thinks that for some, some people are more equal than others. For someone running on a platform of equal distribution of power, he sure does seem to be looking for the biggest equal portion for himself. You don't have to mess with the PowerPoint. I'm just going to go by myself here. Karak isn't a Democrat. He's a demagogue, using the fears and uncertainties of the populace as fuel to further his ambitions. Moreover, Moses can see that the coalition that Korach has put together cannot possibly stand. There are two separate groups within Korach's faction, the Perubinites and the firstborn sons. Both groups are after the same thing, the priesthood. And Korach has promised it to both of them. Korach is playing both sides of the fence, and he won't hesitate to discard his allies once they serve their purpose. But worst of all, Karak doesn't understand what it means to be a leader in God's kingdom. Karak is clever when he makes his argument against Moses and Aaron. He does something I call two truths and a lie. Paul mentioned it. He makes a few undeniably true statements and then mixes a lie into the truth to give it credence. When Karak says that all the people are holy, that's true. God has asked his people to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. When he says that God is with them, all of them, that's true too. That was the point of building the Mishkan, to give God a place to dwell among the people and to be with them wherever they went. Where Korach was wrong was in his third statement. Why then do you set yourself above God's people? There's a theory in psychology that most people have heard of called projection. It's when people defend themselves against their own worst qualities by denying that they exist while attributing them to others. This seems to be exactly what's happening here with Karach. Karach is an ambitious man, so of course he reasons that Moses and Aaron must have the same drives and motivations that he does, the desire to be above people. This is one word, with this one word, above, Karach reveals himself to be unworthy of being a leader in God's kingdom. Moses is wise enough to know that while he is the leader of the nation, he's not above the people. Moses represents the birth of a new kind of leadership. When you think of ancient Egypt, what's the first thing that comes to mind? It's got, it's got to be pyramids, right? That's what always pops into my head. These, these buildings and the ziggurats of Mesopotamia were the great symbols of the ancient world. But they were more than just buildings. They were statements in brick and stone and mortar, about how the world works. Pyramids, think about it, are wide at the base and narrow up to the top. At the top of the pyramid sits the king or the pharaoh. Beneath him is a series of elites, and at the bottom, the common people, all working hard to hold up the rulers at the top. This wasn't just one, just one way of organizing society. It was the only way, the great chain of being and it repeated itself all over nature. The sun rules over the stars. The lion rules over the animals. Kings rule over the nations. The whole universe is organized this way. But God had made Israel to be different. Israel was to represent to the world a new way of living with each other. A world where all human beings, not just the king, are made in the image and likeness of God. 
there was still a need for leaders in this world. An orchestra, an orchestra it's just a bunch of noise without a conductor. An army is just a mob without a general. And the nation would collapse into anarchy without some form of government. But no one is entitled to rule over others without their assent. In the world where all people have equal dignity in the eyes of heaven, the leader does not stand above the people. The people don't serve him. He serves the people, and he serves God. Yeshua gave us the same lesson in our Besorah portion today. He told us the last shall be first and the first is last. If you want to lead, you need to serve. If the symbol of the world was the pyramid, the symbol of the Jewish people is the menorah, the inverted pyramid, wide at the top and narrow at the bottom. A leader in God's kingdom does not lift himself up on the backs of those beneath him. Instead, he lifts others up on his shoulders. But Karak doesn't understand this. And for this and many other reasons, God judges against him and affirms his choice of leader in Moses. Only a man of great humility can be the leader at the bottom of the pyramid, honoring others rather than seeking honor, inspiring others to reach new heights rather than climbing ahead on their own. A great leader is motivated by ideals, not personal ambitions. They are driven by a desire to influence, not a desire for power. To be a great leader is to be a great servant first. And those who serve do not lift themselves high. They are the ones who lift others towards God. So, shalom.